Now let me ask you to turn to 1 Timothy, if you haven't already, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we have started some weeks ago. We took a break for Christmas. We're back into 1 Timothy, and we're in chapter 2, walking our way through that. Now, just remember that uh, chapter 1 was a recognition of the reality of false teachers in the church, And uh, Paul, the apostle, was telling Timothy, be on the lookout because these guys are going to come in from without and even come from within among your own teachers and and preachers. And with that, he shifts a little bit in chapter 2. And we've entered into a study of what the church of Jesus Christ is to look like. Now, this was written, give or take, about 2,000 years ago. But it is just as appropriate to understand what he is saying for the church of Jesus Christ today, and particularly us here at Heritage, what we want to do is just let the Word speak as much as we can. I know everybody says that, but we will try to do that as we walk through some of these uh, things that today are controversial, I think made so by our culture and by our evangelical culture, but I think if we can get some clarity on these things, that they will be very very helpful to us as individuals and as a church. And so let's just begin reading with verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Today we're going to be focusing on verses 3 and 4, but let's read the whole thing to set the, uh, the tone for all of this. First of all, make it a priority, Timothy, then I urge, and he uses four different words, to an umbrella of prayer that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, every individual if you could, but no one is going to be able to do that. So let's start with this particular grouping of people for kings, emperors, in other words, presidents, those in authority, and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Verse 3 is kind of a transition verse. It goes with the first part. It goes with the second part. This is good. What's good? To pray. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Father, thank you for your word Thank you that we have uh, this morning read your word. Uh, This morning we have sung your word. Thank you that we now are going to hear the preaching of the word. And I have been praying all week and even this morning as I was standing there that, Father, your word would find its way into the hearts and and every heart here uh, would be fertile soil so that your word would bring about the desired results of salvation to Everybody, everyone in this uh, congregation today, and indeed the whole world. And, and Father, I pray that for those of us who know you, that it would mean a deeper level of commitment to you as we grow in our sanctification process. So thank you for this, and attend my words. With the power of your Holy Spirit, I depend utterly upon you, Lord, for that. And so we thank you for what we will learn this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just said it, verse 3, this is good, and it pleases, and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What is good? Prayer is good. Now, let me just reiterate that. I told you last week that every opportunity that we have corporately, we ought to be praying uh, for, uh, for everyone, but particularly, it says, for those in authority. He'll say it again in verse 8, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people at all times and in all places. And I, I'm just going to throw in some verses. Now, for those of you who are, are here all the time, you know this is what we do. Make a statement and then back it up. Prove it. Actually, what I'm hoping to do is make statements that just grow out of the Scripture. And so I want to show you some of the things. As I study, I just I have pages full of, of, of Bible verses and passages, and so I boil it down and bring it to you to show you that this is not just one passage of Scripture. This is not just what I think. 
So here's what Paul says in another place. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by, and he uses some of these words, prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then let's add to that another verse, pray without ceasing. I had this thought this last week because something in in my study of the book of Revelation came to me and I remembered that there are a couple of passages in the book of Revelation that equate the prayers of the saints with incense. The, The imagery is beautiful. It goes back to the Old Testament and certainly it is there for us in the book of Revelation. And, and it goes up, it ascends up to God. And when it says that it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, your prayer and our prayer corporately is also pleasing in the nostrils of God. It smells good. I don't know what all that means. I just know that God likes it. And I had this thought, I'm not really into this, so some of you can help me perhaps to become more educated about this, but I think that there is a big movement today with essential oils and aromatherapy, aromatherapy, and so even in a secular sense, there are those who believe that good smells have a healing capacity. I don't know about all of that. Like I said, some of you can educate me afterwards about that. But what I do know is that it pleases God. It ascends to God your prayers as a fragrant aroma. Now, let me just say this about prayers for all men in all places. This is the kind of prayer that is totally inclusive. Nobody is left out. When it zeroes in on a particular group of people, we want to pray for those, and we do. But I, I, I want you to know that if I could, I can't, but if I could, I would pray for every person by name. But I do pray for as many as I can. And within our church, there are times when I go through the church list, and I pray for our members, I pray for the children, I pray for the the regular attenders here at the church. I think that's important. You know, one of the practical advantages of doing that, by the way, does everybody have a, if you're a member, do you have a little booklet of the people that are members in the church? You you ought to have. And sometimes people will, will ask me, how do you remember names? I do have a little bit of a a natural affinity for that, but I'll tell you what, when you pray for people by name over and over again, then when you see them in the hallway or you see them out and about, then all of a sudden, you know them and they're important to you. And so I would encourage you that while Paul says all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, that that's not excluding praying for every individual that you can. Now, here's what I find that's very, very interesting about this third verse. God is called God our Savior. This is not the only time that He's called God our Savior, but that is not a a typical name that we give to Him. This is good, and this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He's known by many other names, isn't He? God our helper, God our shepherd, God our strength, God our provider, God our healer, and all of these are good and they should be prayed, but one of the greatest, if not the greatest, because the others depend upon this one, is God our Savior. Now, let's learn some things about God our Savior from verse 4. Who? God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so let's walk through this verse. And I'm going to start in the middle of the verse, and we're going to come back to the first of the verse, and then we're going to end with the last of the verse. That's our our, our time today is going to be filled with that. 
I want to focus, first of all, on his statement, all people to be saved, and I want to ask the question, do all people need to be saved? All types of people? Yes. Every individual? Yes. All people need to be what? Saved. Many, many years ago. I, I, I don't know that this was the experience of everybody in this organization. When we were in seminary, we worked in a, a, a youth organization called Young Life. And I had grown up in church. Some of the other leaders had not, and some of the kids that we worked with definitely had not. And so I was a club leader. And my job when we met, I think it was every Thursday night, and we would have songs, and then kind of like church, but a little bit different. And, uh, and then I would teach. And so the, the leader, several leaders came because I was new, and they wanted to hear my teaching, and then we'd get together and they would, uh, we would talk about it. They would critique me, in other words. And one of the things that they said was this. Marty, don't use the word saved or save. Now, pl please understand, I, I am not downing that. This is where they were coming from, and here was their reason for that. They said the word save is a churchy term. We are dealing with I'm not sure what word they used there, unsaved, kids who did not grow up in church, and so therefore that word may not be understandable to them. Uh, I, I, I think I, I became speechless at that moment. I didn't really know how to respond because saved was such an important part of my growing up experience. What does it mean to be saved? The basic meaning of the word is to rescue, to rescue from danger, to rescue from destruction. And when you think about it, that, that kind of a picture is woven into our hearts. It's woven into our psyche. And I'll prove it to you in the secular realm. Of the 10 top grossing movies that are out today, what is the theme of the majority of them? I think all but maybe one. It's about people who are in danger. Now, usually, and it, it, it's interesting. Most of the movies are about superheroes. And so th there's a group of people, and sometimes it's the whole world. And boy, after they make a blockbuster about the whole world be being saved, I, I, what's going to come next? But there's another threat of danger and destruction, and there's a need, and everybody's looking for a superhero to arrive on the scene. In my day growing up, when I was little, I mean real little, this guy was a cartoon character. The superhero was a mouse. <laughs> Mighty Mouse is on the way to save the day. You remember the song? And then Superman came along. Faster than a speeding bullet. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. I don't know. I, I think of all of them, whether it's, you know, you can just name them. Who's, who's your favorite superhero? Is it Superman? Is it Spider-Man? Is it Iron Man? I can Iron Man but I'm not Iron Man. Is it Jake Sully? See, in every one of these, the, the pull, the draw, 
is that the way of existence of a, of a people is coming to an end. There's danger. And somehow there needs to be raised up a superhero. But folks, and these are all mythical. They go way, way back. We've just taken it and to a new level with our, our movies and things like that. But it's always been a part of the, the, the human makeup to desire a superhero. And the problem is we don't need a superhero. We need a savior. Because none can match up. And, and here's the thing that is attached to it. The superheroes save people from destruction and from danger. And we really do need to be saved. What do we need to be saved from? The danger and the destructive of? Destruction of what? Sin. How did that happen? We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. I'll go back and just do a, a real brief overview. Adam was created, then Eve was fashioned out of him, and they were both in a sinless nature with a sinless life until they disobeyed. Now, here's a, here's a question. When did they become sinners? Go ahead. This can be interactive. When they, when they sinned, they became sinners when they sinned and disobeyed God. In that moment? Yes, in that moment, they were fallen. What did they pass on to their kids and to their grandkids? They passed on who they were. Listen, cats have what? Cats. Dogs have what? Oh, come on, you know the answer. Dogs. Sinners have what? I think sinners have cats. So. Tala, I'm sorry. I'm okay. Therefore, just, just as sin came into the world, hey, let's get back to this. Through one man, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So what he did was pass on his nature. Sin is what everyone does because of what everyone is. Isn't that what the discussion between God and Cain was all about? See, it's, it's this. It leads into this from the New Testament. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, I don't know if you've ever seen the cause and effect. The cause is in the second part of the verse. The effect is in the first part. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness, and then we get to the nature because that second lawlessness is a noun. Sin is lawlessness. So out of our lawless natures, we practice sin. And that's exactly what Cain experienced. Now, Adam knew his wife. I'm going to borrow here. I, I think this is legitimate uh, interpretation exegesis, okay? Because Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, it doesn't say until the birth of Seth in chapter 5, but I think it applies back to Cain and Abel and the rest of them. Because it says, and I'm adding this, in his, Adam's own likeness, after his own image. And that doesn't just mean physically. And then there was a conversation when Cain grew so violently angry. Where did that come from? And God confronts Cain. And he's trying to woo him to not do what ultimately he knows that Cain is bound to do. If you do not do well, Cain... God said to him, sin is crouching at the door. What door? The door of their hut? The door of the heart. It's there. It, it, it's there, Cain. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Did Cain rule over it? No. He did not because he could not. Because we find later on in 1 John, way toward the end of the Bible, we should not be like Cain who was nature, identity of the evil one, 
and his actions, sinful actions, he murdered his brother. That crouching at the door is a picture of enslavement. Cain was enslaved. So were all of the ones to come after. So were all of you from birth. God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Wow, that's great. To keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, they themselves, this is the unrighteous or wicked. We don't use that word much anymore, but that's what it means. They themselves, the wicked, are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. Study it. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. We do wickedness because from the get-go, we are wicked. The psalmist said it. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean they committed sin when he was conceived, but he recognizes the reality that they were born with that sin nature, and he was conceived in the same way, wicked in the womb. And then later on in Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Why? Because they were conceived in sin, and that's their very nature. Thus, the end of the myth of the innocent child. Now, hear me. In one sense, yes, children are so innocent. But every one of you who's raised a child, and then your grandkids come along, and they're perfect. Well, you kind of think that. But they're not, because before too long, when they're old enough to begin to act, and nobody told them to be selfish, and nobody told them to hit, or to take a toy, or to bite. Nobody told them to do it. It's from, it's from that nature that they inherited from their parents and grandparents, and all the way back to Adam. So the question again is this, here it is, he desires all people to be saved. Do people really need a savior? Yes, we not only need to be saved from our sins, and normally that's the only thing we focus on, but can anybody guess another component of what we need to be saved from? Come on, we need to be saved from God's wrath. It's not just this personal thing, I need to be saved so I can be a better person and I can maximize my potential. But there is a problem between the lost sinner, the wicked, and God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteous, ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men. Then in chapter 2, he adds, because of the hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Then there will be wrath and fury. Second myth to undo. I, I hear this all the time. I know that there... See, the best myths are when an element of truth is included. Have you ever heard this one? I know you have. You've probably used it. Hate the sin. Yeah. Love the sinner. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. There's an element of truth in that. But the upshot is that the sinner is somehow overlooked and the sin is what gets punished. In the book of John, which is called the gospel of love, 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We know that's true, but later on in this, who goes to hell, the sin or the sinner? The sinner who sins. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, one of the most precious promises in all the world, and many of you in this room, if not all of you in this room, I pray, I hope, have experienced this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How could it remain on him unless it's on him already? God desires all people to be saved because all people need to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, this was, if, if you got your Bible open, look back at Paul's testimony in chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds this, I was the worst of the bunch. I'm at the top of the list. That was Jesus' mission, to come into the world to save sinners. And you know, the, the thing about it is, when Paul was saved, and I've asked the Lord, please don't let me lose. And a lot of people that go to church, they've lost the wonder. They've lost the, just the overwhelming sense of being saved. Paul never got over it. So we don't want to just be like Paul. We, we, we want ourselves to come into that understanding of what we have been saved from. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and every one of us ought to say, uh, excuse me, Paul, I take, I take your place at the top of the list. And in doing that daily, I don't think you'll ever, ever get over it. And that's, look, look at the title of the sermon, Passion for Missions. What does that have to do with missions? It has everything to do with missions. Because if we believe this verse, if this verse really gets us, if we get the verse and the verse gets us, we will be one of the most missional churches on the face of the earth. If we believe that undeserving sinners, every one of them, God desires to save. Some of you, I'll share in this message a couple just snippets for my own testimony. Grew up in a church, rebelled, as many people do. Came back, educated in a Southern Baptist seminary, served Southern Baptist churches. Now, the only reason I say that is because Southern Baptists are generally known as the most mission-minded people on the face of the earth. And yet, I did not go on my first overseas mission trip until I was 50 years old. And something is wrong with that picture. At least I thought it was wrong for me. I'm not condemning anyone else who's never gone on a mission trip. But I had to realize, I've shared this with some of you before, it came as a great, a, a really a, a game changer for me when I realized that the Great Commission was not given to the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was given to me. Now, I'm not against the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention organizing together to send missionaries into the world. Flawed? Yes. Every mission organization is. But I had to realize that that commission was given to me and to the church. What would happen, again, if, if Heritage Baptist Church really got it? I'm, I'm talking about everyone in this room and us together corporately. If we saw that the mandate was given to us and we became the missionary. It's a radical thought these days, but it is a right-on thought if we interpret 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, all people. He desires all people to be saved. Now, here's a question. I've got, I've got it in this paragraph right here. We could go pages, and there are theologians who have done that, and we're not going to get lost. But I'll just say this, okay? So, here, here's the theology behind this verse, and I, 
you need to shake out the cobwebs and uh, listen up, because I believe this is what, what, what Paul is saying, inspired by God. Does all people mean all kinds of people, or does it mean every individual person? Nobody's answering. The answer to that is yes. Okay, hang on. The majority of commentators say all kinds of people means all people without distinction, and it's true. Look at verse 1, that's the context. But I'm just going to tell you that I have no problem with it meaning, and it's not what I think, but, but it's what it could be made abundantly clear here if Paul was trying to think of something else, okay? So I know that the, the context, all the rest of that. There is no problem with Paul meaning every person that he desires to every person to be saved as long as it doesn't lead to, are you ready? To universalism. Universalism is a teaching, it's been around for a long time, that teaches that since God desires, it's in his heart, God desires for all people to be saved, then ultimately every individual will be saved, even those in hell. That's universalism. That you know what? That's a consistent outcome of a wrong belief about this verse and taking it together with, with all of the other Scripture. So, every person is not a problem any more than all kinds of people is a problem as long as it doesn't lead to universalism. Second thing, as long as it doesn't lead to, please hear this, a diminishing of God's sovereignty or power in salvation and to the elevating of man's sovereignty and power over God's. As in, God really wants to save everybody because he can't because people won't let him. Folks, I think that's as much of an error as universalism. With that said, you ready? Heritage, this needs to be our heart. God desires everyone to be saved. If all have sinned is true, and it is, then God's real and sincere desire is that all be saved. And let me pepper it with a couple of other verses. By the way, I know the translations of these and how people have interpreted those in the past. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. Don't, don't, don't get all anxious because it's been a couple of thousand years and where's the Lord and all the rest. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Now, if the Holy... If Peter writing this wanted to really, really make it clear, which a lot of commentators say this, and I, I don't have a problem with this, patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should come to repentance, that's true. But I take the wider view of that. Just let it say what it says. Not wishing that any should perish. That goes kind of like with, with the desiring that all men be saved. Oh, here's another Old Testament expression of that. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? God has a hair trigger on his grace. He has a safety lock on his judgment. It will come. And it will glorify him, but he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather that he should turn from his way and live. As he says it again in chapter 33. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Okay, here it is. This 
reality. God desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of truth is the reality that should drive Heritage Baptist Church and you individually in sharing the gospel with everyone. By the way, this whole thing about God to life, we, we, again, it's woven into our psyche as well. When, when, when my kids were, were younger and they disobeyed, and I know you parents did the same thing, they were disciplined. They always thought I was not telling the truth when I said, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And my kids would say, yeah, right, Dad. You're the one holding the paddle. But I can tell you that deep down inside when I would see one of my kids, uh, when they got older, grounded, some more than others, some for longer times than others, I knew it was right, but I took no pleasure in it. I knew it was a pain. It was a grief to them, and so it was a grief to me. Well, just magnify that and take out the sinful nature. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, okay, we hold, listen, I do, I hold firmly to the general desire of God to save all people, but I also, and this is where it's not sticky, it's just biblical. I hold also firmly to God's clear, specific design or purpose where He actually determines what's going to happen. And again, theologians have talked all around this. God has a will, but because He is God, he has that general will of desire, and he has also a very specific will of purpose wherein he determines the salvation of specific individuals. So just like I read those scriptures and have no problem with him desiring all people to be saved, let's look at what else the Bible says. He chose us. Now, in seminary, I had a professor that I really, really liked, but when we started studying Ephesians chapter 1, he, he did some uh, uh, interpretive gymnastics that my, I, my head was swimming. He chose us. He said he really didn't choose us. He chose Jesus. And so when we believed we were put in Jesus, and that's why he, it doesn't say that. It says he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. This God who desires all to be saved chose us, those of us who are saved, before the foundation of the world. Jump to Revelation. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When were they written? Before the foundation of the world. Here's another verse. Later on in chapter 1 of Ephesians. In love he predestined. Never be afraid of the word predestined. It's a biblical word. And again, don't do the, 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 the gymnastics, the interpretive gymnastics to try to take away the meaning of that, the force of that. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his specific, the purpose of his will. Does he desire all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Yes. Will he? because of his purpose to save, predestined some to adoption as sons. According to the Word of God, he already has. Okay? Here's another verse. I, boy, you just have to be selective. Though we were not, uh, they were not yet born. Now, again, people have, have done a lot with this particular concept. The whole, if you look at the whole context, it's salvation. And so Paul is illustrating salvation by showing election, divine election, by showing an illustration. He does it twice with Pharaoh later on, but he talks about Jacob and Esau. People say, oh, well, no, no, that's just about nations. 
it doesn't really change the meaning of it. Why one or the other if this is true? Though they were not yet born, Jacob and Esau, and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then let's jump back to Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Here's that word again. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, for many, many people in many churches, there is a problem with putting those two realities together. But really, the only problem is that you and I are finite and God is infinite, so he can do things that are true that seem to be opposed and both of them go together perfectly in his mind. Let me give you an example. Third and fourth graders, those of you who were in Awana this last week, what did we learn about? Anybody remember? One of you third and fourth graders, yell it out. Abe, are you over there? Do you remember? Okay, we learned that these are third and fourth graders. Should we really be teaching them these things? We learned that Jesus is what? A hundred percent God. Okay. Some of you are the third and fourth graders. You with me? And we learned, Jacob and James, you, you, you were here, you were there too. We learned that he was 100% what? Man. Now, wait a minute. You can't do that. Okay, I'm really going to quiz you guys, third and fourth graders. What big theological word is that called? Levi, do you remember? What is that called? I knew you'd get it. And I told these third and fourth graders, I said, that's what theologians down through the years have called the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Do third and fourth graders really need to be learning these truths? Yes, because they're true and because God is so much bigger than our finite minds. And if he can, in his son... He can be a person who is 100% God and 100% man. Then he can put together how he desires the salvation of every person and at the same time choosing a multitude that no man can number. Folks, please, this is not just academic argument. You may go home. I, this may make some great discussion around the dinner table. I hope it does. But it's not just about academic argument. It's not about, it's not God being divine schizophrenia. These are truths that are deeply personal. Deeply personal. They talk about salvation, but they talk about other things as well. Do you remember a guy who was a king by the name of David? Anybody? Okay, I, I, I hate to share this incident, but it really happened. Do you remember when he was walking around? He was about 50 years old. He knew better the commandments of God. He, he memorized the commandments of God. He was walking around, and he saw a very beautiful woman. What did God desire for him to do? The same thing he desires for all of us to do, to obey the seventh commandment to obey the sixth commandment, to obey the eighth commandment. Do you know how many commandments David broke in going after Bathsheba? God did not desire, that did not give him pleasure when David did that. That's his general will. He, he wants us all to walk in his light. But lo and behold, Bathsheba was the only wife of King David who was ordained to be the mother, the great-grandmother, the great-grandmother, the great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make it even more personal. 
Some of you know my testimony. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. And I didn't find this out until later in life, my 40s, for real. Uh, had an inkling of it, but uh, my mother got pregnant out of wedlock. when she was 17 years old, with me. And uh, was that God's desire for my mother? No. It brought, I, I, I go back to those days when that kind of thing, back in 1949, when that kind of thing was not really it, it just didn't happen as much as it happens today. It wasn't public. And the kind of anguish that it must have put my grandparents through and the, the whole thing, community, small community, Fayetteville, Arkansas. So humanly speaking, I, in some people's minds, and they've told me that, I'm a mistake. That's where you take that teaching a little bit to the extreme. There's not just hyper-Calvinism, there's also hyper-Arminianism, okay? And yet, according to the specific will of God, His ultimate purpose, that human mistake says I was saved from the foundation of the world, so I had to be at least in the mind of God. How in the world can you put that together? But I'll tell you what it does. It gives me encouragement. God is the God who is able to take all of our sins and to do stuff with them that we can never even imagine. We know that God causes all things. What, do you think that means all things or every specific thing? What do you think? What's the answer? Yes. He makes all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God's heart to save people drives us to take the gospel to all that we can. And his will to save to actually save gives me the confidence that he will indeed save some. Now, the last phrase, God desires for all men to be saved and come to the experiential knowledge of the truth. I added that word experiential knowledge because here's what it boils down to. Salvation and the knowledge of God are not two different things. They are one in the same. It's the whole experience of coming to faith in Christ or being born again, becoming a new creation in Christ, a follower of Christ, not only will we be saved from the penalty of our sin, we will do more than keep the knowledge of God intellectual. A lot of people have the intellectual knowledge of the truth, but they've never stepped into the realm of making it experiential. And with salvation comes that knowledge of the truth in which we will submit ourselves increasingly to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the truth. And let me just give a t two final verses for those. And there in every church, I, I just, I, boy, you hate to think that there are those sitting in the room today who have an intellectual knowledge of Christ and the truth of Christ, but who've never stepped into the realm of salvation, repentance and faith. And Paul says it like this, understand this in the last days, difficult times will come for people will have, and, and he lists a whole list of sins, okay? But at the conclusion of that list, and there are other lists of sins, they will have the appearance, appearance of godliness. They come to church, they're church members, they tithe, all the rest. They do good things, they teach in whatever. 
but they deny its power. Avoid such people, he says. They are always learning. This is very interesting. Parallels with what Paul says in 1 Timothy. They are always learning and never able to arrive at that experiential knowledge of the truth. What do they end up doing? Opposing. Their lives oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding faith. Those are lost people in every Bible-believing church in the land. Jesus said it like this. I'll just quote his words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Preachers are going to be among that group. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. This is the experiential knowledge that Paul is talking about here. He desires, God does, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are you here today and you've heard you have a head full of knowledge? Your life has lived in opposition to the truth. Do you know that can change if you repent of your sins, of your sinful way of living and believe in Jesus Christ that his death was good to save you from your sins? And your life can change. You will be born again. You will become a new creation in Christ. And that's the message for you today. Would you come to faith in Christ? Let me say that after the final prayer, Jim will be here at the front. Ed, you're here close to the front. Others, Lowell, these guys would love, I would love to talk with you about what it means to really know Jesus Christ. So don't leave this place today without that. Now, church, this message has been about the missional heart of God that needs to be our heart, individually and corporately. And pray by His grace that that would happen. Father, I thank You that this is the blessed hope that we have as Christians. Someday, just like I mentioned at the beginning about my dear family member and friend, Bill Ivey, we will come to the time that we will breathe our last. Then the only thing that really matters at that point is, did I turn away from sin? Did I believe in Jesus Christ? Did I come to that experiential knowledge of the truth who is Jesus? So, Father, I ask first of all that you would affect that according to your word and your spirit in the lives of people, some who are here today without Christ. And then I pray for us as church members. I pray that you would impact our hearts that the Great Commission has been given to us individually and corporately. Give us your heart, O God, so that we would desire that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But encourage us that as we do share the gospel, that you have your people there and that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, Father, thank you for this time. We pray now that we would respond appropriately, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.